0: Before I begin the word this morning, I would ask you to join me in a very special prayer. In July 2012, Robin Bales from Manassas, Virginia, Ken Willard from Yale, Michigan, and I were in uh, Somerset, Kentucky to ordain the very first elders of uh, the chapel at Somerset. We planned to ordain four men we ended up ordaining three. One of the men who was to be ordained, Carrie Matheny, a marvelous brother, daughter was diagnosed with cancer just a few days before we planned to ordain him to the eldership. And so it was important for him to be at the hospital with his daughter. Certainly would have been inappropriate to put upon him the burden of shepherding God's sheep in the midst of what he was going through. Uh, Kiera died about a year ago. And uh, Carrie and his wife Kim and their two boys, of course, have gone through a year of grief. And it is now time to ordain Carrie uh, to the role of elder. And so even as we're meeting right now at this very same moment, Hands are being laid on this, dear brother. So let's pray for him. Father, we're thankful for the important thing that's happening in your kingdom today in Somerset, Kentucky. We know the devil hates with a passion this church. The devil hates with a passion those shepherds who care for that sheep. And the devil hates with a passion Carrie and Kim and their children as this man now takes upon the mantle of being an elder in the flock of God. I would ask, Lord, as we always do in these situations, for you to assign some very powerful angels, O God, to protect this dear man and his family. We pray the wounds that they have received will be healed even as they begin to move forward in your calling. We pray that the gospel of Jesus might flourish as this church becomes stronger through this now addition to its leadership. Thank you for loving that church enough to give it men of great character to lead it. Through Jesus, amen. The Apostle Peter makes an interesting and, frankly, accurate statement concerning Paul's epistles. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 15. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, "...as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction." Now it's interesting, you notice even Peter said some of this stuff that Paul writes, sometimes we just have to shake our heads... And say, What does it mean? And we have to cry out to the Holy Spirit to guide us. Now this morning I want to present to you a text that really fits Peter's description. And you might say, Why is that your text? Preparing a sermon to me is like turning on the faucet and the water runs. But the challenge for me always is what word does God want brought this Sunday? And so I spend hours usually wrestling with God. God, what for this week? I noticed in the bulletin some time past you were urged to pray for the preachers, especially while they were rehearsing their sermons. I don't know any preacher, at TCF, that rehearses their sermons. Don't have time for one thing. But strangely, about three weeks ago, the Lord planted in my heart this text, and I perhaps some pray for a topic. For me, my prayer is always for a text, and so this text was put in my heart. A number of things have happened to perhaps give confidence this is from the Lord. So let me read this strange text. <laughs> from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again, for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came I would not have sorrow again, from those who ought to make me rejoice. Having confident in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart. I wrote to you with many tears. Not so that you would be made sorrowful. But so that you might know the love. Which I have especially for you. If any has caused sorrow. He has caused sorrow not to me but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him For to this end I also wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. As we read this impassioned plea from Paul, we kind of shake our heads and say, "What on earth is this man talking about? <laughs> What's this?" And then when that final statement, "We we are not ignorant concerning Satan's schemes," what schemes? The answer is found in one of Paul's earlier letters to the Corinthian church. Paul wrote at least 3 letters to Corinth. We have two of them that we call First and Second Corinthians in our New Testament. He did write it, we know at least one earlier letter because he constantly refers back to it. But in all of his writings to Corinth, Paul has to address all kinds of problems. Corinth was probably the first megachurch among Gentiles. The first megachurch was Jerusalem, which at one point, said there were 5,000 members, and the Lord kept adding and adding and adding. But the first megachurch was probably Corinth. And the last church in the world I think we'd want to look to as a model is Corinth. It was just full of troubles. (laughs) One problem was the influence of Gentile thinking. Another problem was some took grace to the extreme and made it licentiousness. And at the opposite end, there were some of those who were legalistic and trying to impose the law. Another was a tendency to have favorite preaching superstars. Who's your favorite preacher? And so the church was divided up among sects and schisms as loyalty to this preacher and that preacher. It was plagued with jealousy and ambition and pride and on and on we could go. The list is too long to complete. But in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul addressed One of the most serious problems, and gave instructions how to deal with it. It is actually reported that there's immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. in verse thirteen, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So the confusing words that we find in second Corinthians chapter two verses one through eleven are in response to what happened when the church followed Paul's commands to excommunicate the sinning member in the hopes that an excommunication would result in that man's repentance and return to Jesus. Now, you often heard me speak of God as the great chess player. God makes a move. devil makes a move. Sometimes we make a move. God makes a move. <laughs> But in the situation we're noticing today, the chess player we're going to really notice is Satan. I'm reminded of the screw tape, uh, screw tape Letters. If you've read that book, you remember there was the, the senior demon who was teaching younger demons how to tempt and handle Christians. And so Christians do this, then do this. If they do that, do this. And we see that ploy here. Sometimes you hear charismatic teachers urge us not to do much teaching about the devil because that glorifies him. I recently heard one preacher quoting 1 Peter 5:8: Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, Browse around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He said, you know we don't need the devil as do. He's acting like a roaring lion, but he really isn't. All his teeth are pulled. All he can do is gum something. What a horrible distortion of what Paul is saying in that passage. What he's saying is, Satan is our enemy. He is dangerous, and he's looking to devour us. Just like a roaring lion looks to devour its prey, Satan by name is mentioned thirty five times in the New Testament, under the label of the devil he's mentioned thirty eight times that's seventy three times in the New Testament he is addressed that doesn't count how many times in the Old Testament. Not only that we have this warning in ephesians five fifteen Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. The Greek there is blepete un akribon, which means look carefully. The idea is look carefully at the path upon which you're walking. There are going to be some depressions where you might turn your ankle. There's a stone where you might stub your foot. There's a trap perhaps set for you. As you walk through life, look carefully. Because there's danger. This morning, I want to take time to pay attention to Paul's statement concerning Satan and how he wants to take advantage of us and how we need to pay attention to his schemes. You know, as I began thinking about this, I was just flooded with verses began coming to mind. And I realized this topic is so big, it would need a sermon series. So what we're going to do today is focus on the particular situation described in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2. Why did Paul command the church to excommunicate this man? Three times in the Law of Moses and in its enactment there's a very strong statement that says a son should not have sex with the same woman his father is having sex with. And that applied to wives and later to concubines. Remember, one of Jacob's sons did not receive a blessing because he had committed that sin. And so Paul said, you know, I've heard about this it's broad knowledge that you have immorality something's going on that even the Gentiles would not sanction and you're boasting about it. oh we're inclusive we have the wonderful grace of God Paul said shame on you you ought to be weeping you must excommunicate the man And then he gives two reasons why. First, he says, to save the sinning sinner. That's the dominant thing, to save the sinning member. Turn him over to the devil, shun him, have nothing to do with him, don't even eat with him. He no longer will have any place in the house of God. He'll lose all of his Christian friends. And the only world he'll find himself in is in the world of sinners and Satan. Hopefully, that will be so painful and so bruising that he'll repent. Now, you know, today, if a church decides to excommunicate somebody, all they have to do is go next door to another one. (laughs) Wasn't true in that day. And then the second reason he gives it this, to protect the church from allowing sin to grow in its midst he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leaven is the whole dough? Clean out the old leaven. So the two reasons. The primary one is to see this man brought back to Christ. The second is, as Bill Sullivan has said, to avoid the slippery slope of sin that can quickly destroy the holiness of a local church. And so excommunication did take place. And then Satan's chess game began. He started to employ schemes. He used the church's obedience to the apostles' command. And he acted in three ways. We want to notice those this morning. First of all, he used the church's obedience as an opportunity to further division in the church. Corinth was already a church plagued with the disease of division. Paul addressed that more than once in this letter. I think I've mentioned before that some years ago when I was involved in church camp, and church camp went on for six weeks in the summer, and... What the preachers would do, you'd teach Sunday school and you'd preach the morning service. And then as soon as church was over, you'd haul a bunch of kids to church camp. And then you would stay there and register them. And then you'd drive back to town and preach Sunday night and turn around and go back to church camp. And for a good period of time, I was a church manager, a camp manager. So I had to be there all the time. One Sunday, I'd been so busy, I hadn't had time to prepare a Sunday night sermon. And as I was driving back to town, (laughs) it was about an hour and a half drive from Greenleaf State Park back to Tulsa, about an hour away from Tulsa, I was crying out, God, what am I supposed to preach now? I've got to be in the pulpit in an hour. I don't have a sermon. And as I was passionately crying out, the odor of a skunk wafted through the car. Lord, what's that all about? (laughs) And the Holy Spirit said to me, you never mistake the odor of a skunk. Neither do you ever mistake the odor of Satan. His stench is division. Anytime there's division in a marriage, anytime there's division in the church, anytime there's division, the devil has walked through or perhaps even sat down. That's his most effective tool, you know it? (laughs) We get our feelings hurt over this, over that. But notice these interesting words of Jesus. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father, mother, sister, brother is not worthy of me. Loves son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Let me tell you something. Anytime you as an individual or anytime we as a church or any group decides to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, division is going to happen. Friends are going to not want to associate with you anymore. Some family members don't want to have you around because you're a nuisance, because you're praying all the time. But that's what the devil does. That's his next move on the chessboard when somebody says, with all of my heart, I will follow Jesus. When a church says, with all of our heart, we will follow Jesus, the devil will grab some and cause division now notice in verse 6 of chapter 2 of 2nd Corinthians Paul notes that the majority of the church obeyed him evidently a minority did not and so there was division and then Paul wrote an interesting thing in first Corinthians 11 In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, because there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident. Isn't that interesting? That when there is that wholehearted devotion to following God and division happens, the sheep get separated from the goats. That's a a startling statement, isn't it? It's kind of like what John wrote. He said, you know, uh, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out. So it would be shown that they are not all of us. Notice, Paul also said in 2 Corinthians 2, One of the reasons I gave you this hard command was to see if you'd obey. Wow. (laughs) Who are the true followers of Jesus? Those who obey Jesus Christ and what is expressed concerning him through his apostles. So Satan took advantage of this situation. The first scheme, the first ploy, the first device That he put forth when the church, at least the majority, obeyed the command of the apostle. The first thing he did then was to increase division in the body. Second ploy was to produce a pharisaical spirit in the church. One segment, evidently the majority that had excommunicated the man, forgot that the primary purpose for excommunication was to redeem the recalcitrant sinner. Now this wasn't somebody, you know, who ever down failed and imperfect as everyone, but here was a man who brazenly was living in sin in an unrepentant state. And so the purpose was to bring the man to repentance. But they remembered the second reason, to keep the church pure. And so this man has committed this horrible sin. We don't want that kind in our church. And when he did repent, they didn't receive him back. He's contaminated. He stinks. We don't want him in our body the first church where I was minister was a rural church in Ohio outside of Cincinnati just across the Ohio River from Kentucky. And the practice was we'd drive out from Cincinnati Sunday morning, teach Sunday school, preach the morning service, go to somebody's house for dinner, and Barbara and the kids would stay there, and then I'd spend the afternoon out visiting, visiting farmers because it was a rural area. One Sunday afternoon... I ended up at a house that was not in good shape. It was filthy inside. I went in to talk to the man and woman and their kids. There were scrambled eggs on the chairs. had to be careful where you sat. (laughs) We spoke to them about the Lord, invited them to church, and they came next Sunday. And the Sunday school superintendent said to me, we don't want those kind of people in our church. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Can you imagine that? Later on, I got involved with another family, visited a guy in jail, and his family had been known for incest, but we ministered to him. I don't need to tell you this story, but in time his family came, there was repentance, and this same Sunday school superintendent said, we don't want those kind of people in our church. Can you imagine that? But haven't we seen... Those of us who have spent many years in the church, haven't we seen churches that sometimes get that attitude? We don't want that person. We don't want this person. Instead of rejoicing over the repentant, recalcitrant sinner, we might look down on them. And that's exactly what the devil brought about. Pharisaical spirit. Look what that man did. None of us did it. Remember what Jesus did when the woman in adultery was found and brought before him? He said, we caught her in the very act. What will we do? Jesus said, what did Moses say? Stone her. Jesus said, okay, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Then he started writing on the ground. It says the men left, the oldest to the youngest. I guess the oldest realized they had more sins. I don't know. Is there anybody in this church today who has never committed a sin? Anybody in this church today who doesn't have anything in your background of which you're not ashamed? We're all in the same boat, aren't we? With open arms, let us greet those who, repenting of their sins, come back to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we sweep under the cover what they did. There are a lot of folks that want to do that. Let's just grab everybody. No. Because what they were doing could have taken them straight to hell. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about one who sins willfully after has a knowledge of the truth, so on and so on and so on, and they continue to live in sin. There's a certain fearful expectation, and that certain fearful expectation is damnation. So we don't say, oh honey, that's okay, come on back. But well, we say, honey, do you realize you've sinned? Do you realize you've followed the devil and human impulses rather than the will of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you realize you have shamed the blood of Jesus? And then if that person repents, like the son, the father of the prodigal son, we rejoice and say to that fair sake, oh elder brother, shame on you you ought to rejoice that a sinner has come home. True repentance. What a joy to see one has strayed coming back. And the third ploy of Satan was this, to try to destroy the sinner through despair. You'll notice verse 7. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. When someone has sinned and God taps them on the shoulder and they realize what they have done, the grief can at times be virtually destructive. A straying sinner may develop such self-hate that receiving God's forgiveness just seems impossible. They start to wonder, have I committed the unforgivable sin? And you know, in that state of despair, it's not unusual for one to start to think about suicide. And that makes the devil happy. You see, what the devil would like to do is kill every Christian he can to get every light of God out of the world. He'd like to kill us all. when someone's in such a state we can say look at Judas and look at Peter Judas not only denied God sold him for 30 pieces of silver and then scripture says he repented the Greek word there is metamelomai which means he was sorry for what he did he went out and hanged himself Peter think of Peter Jesus said, Lord, though others deny you, I'll never deny you, I'll die for you. Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows tomorrow morning. Oh, no. And yet we know the story that when Jesus was taken in to be put on trial, and Peter went to the fireplace, or rather the fire, where there was a fire in the courtyard, three different times somebody said, you're one of his disciples. Oh, no, I'm not. And the third time, to emphasize it, he cursed. Oh, well, we know he's not a follower of Jesus. He'd never talk that way. And it's interesting as you read the account, just as Peter denied Jesus a third time, the cock crowed, and they were moving Jesus from one, one room to another, and Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Wow. What happened in Peter's heart? And yet, Peter didn't go hang himself. He went among the other disciples. In time saw the risen Lord. In time became, in a way, the chief apostle, the man who preached the first gospel sermon in the gospel age. Contrast between Peter and Judas. We can come back to God. How often have I personally thanked God that the Holy Spirit inspired John to write these words. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. I don't know about you, but so many times I cannot count it in my life I have had to thank God for that passage. When I fail God, when I've been timid, when I should have been bold, when perhaps some temptation flitted through my heart that should not have been there. Oh, my God, I realize I'm a sinner, but I'm redeemed by your grace. Thank you. I confess it. Receive your forgiveness. Isn't that good news? What a blessed piece of news. Well, this morning, the topic of Satan's wild schemes, devices, boy, what a huge subject, like I say. We could spend weeks on it. But let's notice some things that might speak to us personally out of this. When conflicts arise, corporately and personally, when there are struggles, It is wise to stop and pray and say, where is God in this? And where is Satan in this? Because in almost every situation, both are there. Where is God? Where is the devil? And also, Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.27, do not give the devil an opportunity. (laughs) There are a lot of ways we do that driving without insurance so the devil has an opportunity to take some of your money. You know, a lot of ways. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.